In economics, scarcity refers to material or practical finitude and how we price that reality into a system of value exchange. In other words, there's seldom, perhaps never, a literal infinite amount of anything. And given that reality, how do we quantify that availability ceiling so that our system of exchange is efficient and sensical? Economics, arguably, wouldn't be a thing without scarcity, because if everything was infinite, if we could have whatever we wanted whenever we wanted it, even if just on a practical rather than a literal level, there wouldn't be much need for money, and policies dictating how money flows throughout a society. We'd just have what we want when we want it, and that would be that. So you could say that scarcity underpins a great deal of what we might think of as human civilization. Pretty much all governmental models, historical conflicts, and systems of laws have been predicated on the notion that there isn't enough to go around, and we need to figure out a way to organize, distribute, access, and generate, and refine the scarce resources we have. And sometimes that means printing money so that we can work to generate value points and exchange those labor-generated value points for other things that we want and need. And in some cases, it means going to war with other groups to take their stuff. Scarcity all the way down. Lacking scarcity, society would almost certainly look very different than it does today, and very different from how it has ever looked. Because we've always had scarcity, even if our approaches to dealing with it have differed substantially over time and across geography. Psychologically, scarcity can cause us to perceive things differently. Generally, we will perceive scarce things as being more valuable than a similar or identical thing that is common and widely available. The Diamond Water Paradox has been posited in different forms over the years, but it almost always says, in essence, that although water is arguably one of the most valuable things in existence, because without it we will die, diamonds tend to be a lot more valuable, despite being, for almost everyone and in almost every case, absolutely worthless in terms of bare-bones survival. Of course, there are circumstances in which a diamond that would be worth millions on the market might be rationally traded for a small cup of water. If you're dying of thirst and have only a priceless diamond to trade for that water, well, that diamond gets a price cut pretty quickly. There's a term that's often tossed around in Keynesian economics, animal spirits, that refers to something like the vibe of an economic context, sometimes the royal of emotions permeating a stock trading floor sometimes the measurement of consumer confidence in an economy, and sometimes the anger or fondness that one or both sides feels during a negotiation. In the case of the diamond water paradox, the animal spirits would probably refer to the relative thirst of those involved and the perceived current or future utility of that diamond. If you're in a situation in which the diamond will be priceless once more in the near future, you might try to grimace your way 
through the thirst to get to the other side of your current circumstances, because making it through that finite period of discomfort might set you up for life economically, if you can then sell that diamond once you've made your way out of the desert. That said, there's also the theory of marginal utility, which, to repeat an analogy often used to describe this concept, says that if a farmer has five sacks of grain, he will likely use the first sack to make bread, the second sack to make more bread, the third sack to feed his animals, his cattle, the fourth sack to make whiskey, and the fifth to feed the birds. The idea is that the first sack of grain is vital to his existence, to his survival, and the second locks in that survival. It ensures that he is prepared for the future, but also potentially just stronger in the present. He's got plenty of food on hand. The third sack allows him to spread that well-being around and invest in his animals, while the fourth allows him to make some alcohol, which he probably doesn't need to survive, but which he might enjoy. The fifth sack, though, has far less utility, and thus far less value. He throws it on the ground for the birds, treating like garbage the exact same resource that a few bags earlier was vital for his survival. Without that first bag, he could very well die, while that fifth bag is borderline worthless. According to this theory, then, water may be valued less than diamonds in most contexts, because often we have more than enough water to survive. Much of the world, fortunately, today, has a practically unlimited amount of it, if we're using it for personal drinking or bathing purposes. It's not a literally unlimited amount, but it's enough that we reach that fifth bag of grain stage of marginal utility pretty quickly. We just throw it on the ground. It's so relatively valueless at that level of access. Few of us have access to the same quantity of diamonds, and even though diamonds tend not to be as useful, they are scarce, and thus tend to have far higher price tags, because most of us are in the first bag of grain stage with this particular resource. This theory encompasses labor as well as resources. People who bag groceries or empty trash cans do valuable work, but it's typically valued less by the market because more people can learn to do that kind of work, and relatively quickly. We are at the fifth bag of grain stage. In contrast, far fewer people are capable of performing at the same level as star athletes in their specific sport or event. So even though folks who do all sorts of manual labor and customer-facing work are arguably more vital for the operation and thriving of society, they're typically paid a lot less than their star athlete peers. The marginal utility of each is quite different, and thus we value them differently economically. What I'd like to talk about today is artificial scarcity, and in particular a type of digital artificial scarcity that has recently become quite popular, and which may or may not evolve into a collection of new asset classes. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. 
The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled, NFTs are spurring a digital land grab in video game worlds. NFT is an acronym for non-fungible token, and there's a decent chance you've heard the term sometime over the past few months, even if you're not at all interested in the world of so-called crypto assets, because the NFT world has been blowing up in popularity and in terms of press coverage, despite having been around in embryonic form since 2014. And I'll talk about NFTs specifically in a moment, but first, I want to expound upon the concept of economic scarcity, which I addressed briefly in the intro, and how that concept has become an arrow in the savvy marketer and brand manager's quiver. It's arguably always been there, but it's become increasingly common and arguably more cleverly utilized of late. Artificial scarcity refers to the creation of finitude, where no finitude previously existed, or in some cases, lowering the ceiling so that while there could very easily be a lot of something, you make it so that less of that something is available, which in turn allows you to charge higher prices and or simply increase the perceived desirability and rarity of that thing. This tactic was very successfully used in the diamond market until relatively recently, and still is to a large degree, but new technologies and competitors have rendered it less effective than it was previously. But in the diamond world, the De Beers Group long held a near monopoly over the world's supply of diamonds, and because of that stranglehold on supply, they were able to portion out those diamonds very carefully selling only a relative few each year, keeping the overall supply that's on the market at any one time quite small compared to the demand, which in turn allowed them to keep prices high. And just to be clear, they had plenty of diamonds, but they held most of them back so that prices wouldn't decrease as supply increased. So this was strategic artificial scarcity at play. The global oil cartel, OPEC, uses a similar strategy. The group is made up of some of the world's most prominent oil-producing countries, batching together their output so that they can ensure the market is never too overladen with oil, pumping and then storing quite a lot of their collective overall output to keep the supply at the right level compared to demand, and working with each other to make sure that no one in the group messes with that plan. And this cohesion, in turn, allows them to wield a great deal of control over the price of the product they produce and sell. We see this dynamic used in other markets as well. A lot of high-end clubs don't allow their spaces to fill to capacity, which means making access artificially scarce. Some people are forced to wait outside, in line while a relative few are able to go inside and partake in the club's offerings, which then tends to make those offerings seem more desirable. Streetwear brands like Supreme also make use of this strategy, planning and releasing drops of new products that by all indications are not superior to other products in their category, shirts, shoes, bags, and so on, but because they only release a finite number of shoes in a particular drop, a particular release, there's a planned, intentional scarcity dynamic at play. And this, alongside other sorts of clever marketing, 
means their product can command far higher prices than comparable products on average. And they even enjoy an active aftermarket where enthusiasts resell purchased Supreme products to other enthusiasts. The price is usually higher than that initial sticker price because of that intentional rarity. When I was younger, I played a collectible card game called Magic the Gathering, which was a bit like if you combined Dungeons and Dragons and baseball cards. Pokemon cards follow a similar business model. You buy randomized packs of cards. Different cards have different intentional rarities. There are gobs of some cards in existence and relatively few of others. And that level of availability tends to set the market value on these cards. An older, very rare magic card called Black Lotus recently sold for over half a million dollars. And that's partly because it was from an older release and signed by the artist who illustrated it. But it's also partly because of those initial artificial constraints concocted by the company behind these cards. That's what makes them collectible. And similar rarity-focused games are played behind the scenes with many products that are introduced intentionally as, or which eventually become, collectible. None of which is terribly surprising or weird-seeming, because this is the world we live in. There is scarcity. That's just a natural part of our understanding of things and physical existence. It only begins to seem somewhat bizarre when you consider that it wouldn't cost the company that makes magic cards any more money to just print hundreds of millions of black lotuses instead of a relatively few lotuses, plus gobs of other cards that are worth less money. The worth here is largely determined by that decision to create scarcity in the market. And with a game like Magic, it arguably makes a lot of sense for the balance of the game to first have a bunch of different cards, it wouldn't be a terribly interesting game to play if it was all Black Lotuses, and second, have some cards that are more hard to get, and thus desirable than others. It's good for their business model of trying to get people to buy more randomized packs because this introduces gambling-like incentives to the market, but also because it adds something to the game, if not everyone can afford all the cards they want. I distinctly remember an early, unaffiliated, probably technically illegal, online version of the Magic Card game that we were playing back in the America Online dial-up internet days, which allowed all of us to have any cards we wanted in whatever quantity we wanted. And it made the game kind of less good. We all knew what everyone would use, and it took a lot of the mystique and challenge out of the non-game strategic elements of magic. The trading, the clever investments, the victories that could be achieved on the collection side, rather than the actual card game playing side. All of which is to say, artificial scarcity is a bizarre practice from some perspectives, but at the same time, in some cases, such scarcity is the point. It's what makes things worthwhile, interesting, and valuable. And when that scarcity doesn't exist in some space, there is a chance that you can create that kind of fun, value, and intrigue simply by manufacturing a means of creating scarcity. At times, this can even lead to the creation of what becomes a new, sometimes somewhat mainstream, asset class.
class. This is arguably what we've seen happen in the world of collectible card games, of comics, of vintage video games, and other such ephemera. Things that maybe were rare to begin with, but which have become more rare as a consequence of time and aging products. Cards get bent, comics get torn, video games are damaged. It's also what we've seen play out to varying degrees in the world of crypto assets, some of which are meant to serve as cryptocurrencies, meaning something like a dollar or a yen or a euro, but based on security provided by complex math, by cryptography, instead of government decree, alongside others that have been intentionally created as alternative asset classes, storage spaces for money, basically or those which have become that despite being initially created as something else. Bitcoin arguably falls into that latter category. Because of the cost and sluggishness of Bitcoin transactions, most people these days use it as a replacement for gold instead of as a currency. It's become a way to speculate and to store value rather than a medium of exchange, primarily at least, despite initially being built to replace dollars and other currencies. And that brings us back to NFTs, which, again, stands for non-fungible tokens. These tokens are, like many other crypto assets, often documented on an internet-based public ledger called a blockchain. And this ledger says, basically, here is an asset. This asset is attached to a long, garbled number, and that number serves as its token or its label. And here is who owns that asset. If you were just to make a list of 100 garbled strings of numbers, it's unlikely that you'd be able to sell ownership of those numbers to willing, enthusiastic buyers, even if you did have a method through which you could show who owned which number in a public, ostensibly uncorruptible way. If you were to say that a given garbled number represented a piece of artwork, or a plot of land within a video game, or a specific tweet, though, there is a chance, and an increasingly very good chance, that you could sell that garbled number, perhaps even for a whole lot of money. That, essentially, is what that piece in the Wall Street Journal is about. How tokens which are generally, at their most fundamental level, just long, garbled numbers, documented on a blockchain and attached to all sorts of media, especially those that are not typically scarce, how those numbers are becoming a new asset class, much to the entertainment, chagrin, and or confusion of pretty much everyone. NFTs are different from, for instance, a Bitcoin, because they are not fungible, Meaning, while one Bitcoin is fungible, it's exchangeable for another Bitcoin, because they're all representative of the same thing, and gain or lose value at the same time. One NFT is not exchangeable for another NFT, and that's what allows them to be unique, like a real-life work of art, or a person, or an event, is unique. Because each NFT is different, each one can be attached to a different thing including things like moments from sporting events. There's an NFT marketplace called NBA Top Shot, where you can buy a slam dunk or a dribble or a pass by a favorite basketball player in a particular game. 
And folks are scooping up these moments, which come in the form of officially licensed highlight video clips attached to long, garbled strings of numbers. And they then hold them as assets, or in some cases buy them and then sell them off right away, often for more than they paid for them. Probably the most prominent, newsworthy moment for the NFT world, and for this digital asset class as a whole thus far, was when the famous and well-regarded art auction house, Christie's, sold an NFT-based work by an artist who goes by the name Beeple. He made a piece of artwork daily for 5,000 days, put all of those works together into a single work, and then attached that work to a long, garbled string of numbers, a token. And then he sold that string. He sold that token to a collector for $69.3 million in early March of 2021. The NFT world went wild after that, because although this particular artwork is infinite, you can easily see it, download it, make it the wallpaper of your smartphone if you like, print it out and frame it and put it on your wall. The ownership of this token, which is considered to be attached to that particular work, was bought for a very large amount of money. And that means that there is a market for these types of tokens. It also means that the thing those tokens are ostensibly attached to matters in the valuation of those tokens. And it means that there would seem to be a scarcity-based market for infinite things that did not exist before. Because in some ways, those infinite things, or at least the legal ownership of a jumble of numbers attached to them, has been made artificially scarce by this and similar purchases. Something that isn't very clear in conversations about how this asset class works is how you actually attach something like a video clip of an NBA three-pointer, an animated gif of a cat with a Pop-Tart body, a piece of digital artwork made up of 5,000 other pieces of digital artwork, or a piece of artwork generated by a humanoid robot named Sophia, which is something that happened just recently, how you attach those to a digital token. The short answer is that the token, the string of numbers that you bought, links to a web page or to what's called an IPFS, short for Interplanetary File System, hash, which is a bit like a code that links to a type of file that is stored in a decentralized way on the internet. So the ownership component of all of this just means that there is a media file, like a GIF or a piece of digital artwork, somewhere on the internet. And that media file is connected to a URL or an IPFS hash. And this connection indicates, usually in a public ledger, that theoretically cannot be deleted or edited without your consent, that you are the owner of that piece of media. One issue that has been brought up by a few different people in positions to understand this technology incredibly well is that all of these ownership claims are built on fairly frail infrastructure. If any of the sites listing or hosting these ownership claims go down or are hacked, those ownership claims would theoretically be moot. They would disappear. This is true even of that vaunted $69.3 million Christie's sale. The Beeple work in question is only owned by the buyer who paid all of those millions in the sense that a token that links to an IPFS hash says that he owns it. 
which, granted, isn't the only type of ownership that is more theoretical than practical. That's the case with many different types of asset, but it's also a fairly flimsy basis for a chain of ownership in the digital world, all things considered. It's also worth noting that although a lot of people are excited about this new asset class, in part because it's fun and it's weird, and because it's based on an interesting technology, and maybe because it's more or less a type of speculation or gambling that's familiar and easy to get into for some, it's not universally beloved, and some people are outright disdainful of it. NFTs have been called a pyramid scheme, and a lot of people have already lost quite a lot of money buying in early to an NFT class, only to find that it wasn't one of the few that then popped in value, or in some cases, finding that the IPFS or other token-based system that was built to show ownership disappeared when the auction house or sales platform went under. A service called Check My NFT has already emerged to keep tabs on this sort of thing, and it would seem that most of the IPFS links from an NFT sales platform called Nifty are already broken. They no longer point where they're supposed to point, or in some cases point at anything, which is especially alarming for folks investing in this asset class today, as this is a sales platform that still exists. They're still selling NFTs, but the token system that shows ownership after the purchases are made would seem to be incredibly unreliable. NFTs have also been criticized for being energy hogs in a similar way that Bitcoin is considered to be an energy hog. This is because of the nature of the scarcity created by these NFTs. One method of keeping them finite is using what's called a proof-of-work model which means that the person creating the token, or mining the Bitcoin, has to provide a certain amount of computational power to the software that manages the generation of these tokens. Such computational power requires electrical power. And because of how popular Bitcoin has become, and how much computational resources are now required to generate just one of them, the folks mining Bitcoin worldwide use more energy for this single purpose than the country of Argentina uses for all purposes. If Bitcoin miners were a country, their energy use would be in the top 30 energy-using nations worldwide, which is fairly staggering when you think about it. That's a whole lot of waste, both in terms of energy that could be going to other, arguably far more productive purposes, but often, too, in terms of the fossil fuels that are used to produce that electricity. Many NFTs today are based on another crypto asset called Ethereum, which also consumes real-world energy, and like Bitcoin, and an increasing amount of it, as this crypto coin becomes more popular. As of the day I'm recording this, a single Ethereum transaction, selling an Ethereum or changing the ownership of an NFT, consumes roughly the same amount of electricity as a resident of the European Union consumes for all purposes over the course of four days. That's just one transaction. And a lot of these things are being shuffled to and fro right now, that number increasing because of the newfound popularity of NFTs. That said, there is potential in this space, theoretically at least, to use NFTs as an ownership marker that could someday 
help creators of all kinds of work, like music or visual art or film, personally profit from that work long after they typically would today. The theory is that you could attach all work of this kind to a token, and that would allow us to show ownership, including the ownership of the original creator. And as that work changes hands over time, that original creator could earn a percentage of each future sale. And this could work for sellable creations, but also streamed music and TV shows, photos that are licensed for stock photography purposes, and other rentable, sellable, streamable, ownable, and loanable purposes. Now, it's anyone's guess as to whether this would actually be possible, how much infrastructure would need to be built before it would work, if it is possible, and whether it would be a better option than some other method that wouldn't have the same downsides as this token and blockchain-based solution. But it's worth thinking about. I personally think that it's a fairly compelling concept, and a lot of folks in this space seem to be marketing this technology based on this particular use case, which indicates that it might be polling well with the general public, too. Finally, it's important to note that the NFT market of today has many earmarks of a pump-and-dump scheme, even if that's only a small slice of the market, and even if that's technically true but doesn't get all the way to the truth of what's happening. A pump-and-dump scheme usually involves buying up or creating a bunch of a cheap asset, and then going out and convincing people that that cheap asset is worth something so that they will buy it from you for more than you paid to acquire or create it. The most popular manifestation of this type of scheme in recent years has been celebrities promoting crypto coins on their social channels, typically after being gifted a million of these coins from the creators of those coins. They are then incentivized to convince their fans that this coin is worth something because they can then sell their million coins to those fans. This type of behavior is often illegal when it comes to regulated securities like stocks, and the same has applied in a few cases to these pump-and-dump crypto coins flogged by celebrities. The reason NFTs are being compared to this type of scam is that all of the big, press-worthy sales of NFTs thus far have been made by folks who are already invested in this asset class, or who are running companies through which you can buy NFTs, and who are thus true believers in this technology for whatever reason, but also financially incentivized to increase the popularity of NFTs and the value of work connected to NFTs. Meaning, the guy who bought that Beeple work for $69.3 million owns other Beeple works and other NFT investments as well, and thus his purchase at that price stands a good chance of boosting the perceived value of all NFT works, which looks a bit like the pump stage of a pump-and-dump scheme. But also, arguably, this is something that we see in a lot of other spaces, like the fine art world as well. But it also seems somewhat inevitable that when it comes to a new asset class, those who are first to invest in that asset class would have some reason to believe in it. After all, who's going to buy these early token-based works? Someone who's not into NFTs? 
That seems unlikely by definition. At this stage in this technology's deployment, and especially within the context of this specific use of this technology, even if from some perspectives, it may look, rightly or wrongly, pretty bad. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Fossil Men, The Quest for the Oldest Skeleton and the Origins of Humankind by Kermit Pattison. This is a fairly bulky book, but I would argue that it needs to be. It traces the intertwined stories of a collection of people who are responsible for finding the, so far at least, oldest human and what we might call proto-human skeletons. It also traces the changes in our perception of these skeletons, the changes to our ideas and understandings about these creatures, their biologies, how they probably lived their lives, the environmental circumstances in which they lived, and about the politicking and practicality of unearthing these skeletons. And what goes into that, both in terms of know-how, but also in terms of the motivation to do it to begin with. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Fossil Men by Kermit Pattison. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can find my daily news-focused newsletter, which recently underwent a name change, at onesentencenews.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on pretty much all of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.